Hello, and welcome to the First Baptist Hanford podcast. Our primary mission at FBH is to love God, love people, and serve the world. We hope that this weekly podcast will encourage you in your daily walk with Christ as we play for you our most recent sermon audio. Let's have a listen. Uh, but we're going we're, we're gonna to launch in here. Uh, we are in week three of our Behold series, and uh, this series has been really exciting for me to, uh, to look at Old Testament prophecy and see what those prophecies said about the birth of Christ. And so to go back and kind of pull those things apart, um, I don't remember uh, growing up and learning about any of those things, so I thought this would kind of be a, a fun way to look at the birth of Christ from a slightly different lens. Uh, but before we get completely started, um, I just have a question. Who here in the room is the youngest sibling? Any youngest siblings in here? Yeah, it's okay. It's okay. I validate you being the youngest sibling. You don't need anybody else's approval, okay? Um, so youngest sibling, I, I grew up as the, as the youngest sibling, and I'm a, an adult as the youngest sibling as well, shockingly. Um, and uh, and it, being the youngest sibling, like, we have a different type of mindset than everybody else. Now, okay, hold on. Before we get into that, raise your hand if you're the oldest sibling. Okay, don't be defensive for this, okay? The rest of you guys are going to be like, you know what? I'm the oldest sibling. The baby gets everything. All right, just relax, okay? Just relax. You'll be fine. Uh, Mom and dad spent more time with you than they did with us, okay? Because there were more of you, more of us by the time we showed up, all right? So just oldest ones, just chill out a little bit. Um, but, but so today, actually, uh, Noah, our, our baby, uh, he this week just turned three years old, right? And uh, I know, super, I, he doesn't care. Um, we had his birthday, and he was like, whatever, what do you want for breakfast? Pancakes, what do you want for lunch? Mac and cheese, man for dinner, pizza. Sweet, he's already a bachelor, he's got the bachelor thing down. Um, and... Uh, <laughs> So anyway, so today he is no longer in our nursery. He went to a big kid class today. I know, it's a big deal, big deal. I don't know how it went. Uh, Sarah was by herself doing it, so I hope he didn't scream and kick and cry and all of those things. But if he did, I'm sure he's in good hands. Um, but, but I know for, for Noah, our youngest, that he also has kind of a different mindset, being the youngest, Right? The youngest, oftentimes, they, they try to prove themselves probably a little bit more than they should try to prove themselves. Like we have, we have a, it, it's kind of like a, a cage fighting ring in our backyard. I mean, it's a trampoline, but it's a cage fighting ring in our backyard. Our boys love it. They get on there all the time. I, from the time Noah could like, I don't know, roll over. I think he was in the, the trampoline with all the big kids and you know, mixing it up and wrestling with them and all that stuff. And, uh, you know, and he's the baby. And so when he gets hurt, the whole neighborhood knows that he gets hurt. Um, and we bring him in and we hug him and you're okay. Yeah, I'm fine. I'm good. I'm good. He's also uh, the one of our kids who, um, when we say, hey, it's time for bed. And he says, I don't want to go to bed. I said, no, dad said it's time for bed. And he says, I said, no. I'm like, bro, <laughs> that's not how this works. So the youngest one, so for me, I remember growing up as the youngest one as well, and uh, oftentimes I had to wait quite a bit longer to do other things that my brother got to do ahead of me. 
right? And so my brother, uh, you know, he got to go to school before I got to go to school. He uh, started going to school dances before I got to go to school dances, started playing competitive sports before I played competitive sports, got into high school before I got to high school, got to drive before I got to drive, got to do all of these, I mean, high, graduate high school, college, all those things. Once we got into college, though, I kind of passed them up, right? I, I got a really beautiful wife and had kids before he ever did, so... I won. Youngest kids. What up? Um, Anyway, that had nothing to do with anything. Anyway, um, but I remember as I grew up that oftentimes I felt like I was the littlest one, right? Like like I always was waiting. I had to wait a little bit longer. You know, babies here in the audience with us, uh, the youngest ones in the family. Uh, You probably felt like that oftentimes. It was always like, no, you need to wait. You need to wait. You need to wait. And it's this long ongoing kind of patience thing that we got to we got to build into ourselves simply because we had to wait to do things or we were too small to do things and so today we uh we get the opportunity to talk about something small doing something great now maybe maybe some of you are in the same boat right maybe you were told maybe it wasn't just too little maybe it was you weren't good enough at a sport Maybe it was uh, you weren't qualified for a job. Maybe it was <laughs> I'm out of your league. You know, whatever it may be. Uh, I don't know what boat you have found yourself in your life where you maybe felt inadequate or overall just unassuming and average, right? I, d- I don't know where in your life, but I can assume that, you know, we're all reasonable people here for the most part. Uh, I can assume then that most of us think to ourselves, I'm just a normal person, I'm just a normal person. I am an average, kind of unassuming sort of person. And today we get to take a hard look at some more prophecy. And this prophecy, uh, if you have your Bibles, your phone, whatever, Micah chapter 5, you can flip open to there or click open to there, whatever it is uh, that you do, wherever your Bible is. But Micah chapter 5, before we get there, we need to, to set some ground rules. Because each of us, in the, in the busyness of this season, we're doing our best to, uh, to get more done in a smaller amount of time. Right? If I can just be more efficient. Well, if I, can, if I have Amazon Prime, I could finish my Christmas shopping in one sitting. Right? Like if I can just, maybe if I logged off of Facebook, uh, maybe for just, maybe I was only on Facebook for three hours today instead of seven, I could maybe get some stuff done. Right, just in the busyness of season, the busyness of life, we're all trying to get kind of more done. If I can just be a better leader, if I can just log off the computer, if I can just try harder, if I can just do X, I will become greater. I can do better things. But as we read through some scripture today, we're going to recognize that as we feel inadequate, even in the busyness of this season, as we may feel too small, as we may feel too ill-equipped, as we may feel like we don't have enough time to accomplish the things that we want to accomplish, we can take heart because in Scripture we see over and over again that God uses the little and insignificant things to change the world. God uses the little and insignificant things to change the world. And it's all throughout Scripture. God has oftentimes taken the weakest link and made it the strongest. King David was the least of his brothers. Yet he stood toe-to-toe with Goliath in the name of the Lord and conquered. Gideon was the least of his family, and his family was the least of all of the tribes. 
Yet Gideon, fighting in the power of the Lord, was victorious over the Midianites. Samuel, Moses, Amos, every single one of the disciples were insignificant nobodies. And God used them and they accomplished great things. So I said insignificant nobodies, then all the babies, we got a little bit offended because we are somebody, right? But that being said, we're going to continue to look at just unassuming average people. Why does God do things this way? We're going to look in 1 Corinthians. You don't have to flip to it. It'll be up on the screen. 1 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 27. It says, But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It's because of him that you're in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. So God uses the things in this world that the world has written off as nobody or insignificant in order to make sure that the world knows that it is God who should get the credit, not man. In order to make sure that we can boast in God, and as we continue to go through our Christmas series, we recognize that Christmas is about the fulfillment of God's promises to those who are insignificant, to us. That's what Christmas is about. It's important for us to recognize that it isn't amazing that God came to earth. It's amazing that God came to earth for us. It isn't amazing that God simply came to earth because we recognize that God can do what he wants. He's a massive God. He wants to stretch into skin. Great. Let him stretch into skin. That being said, that's not the amazing thing. The amazing thing is the why behind why he did it. It was for us and our behalf. And as we dig into Micah today, we're going to look at an amazing contrast between the insignificant and the significant, between weakness and between, between weakness and strength. Micah 5, starting in verse 2, it says this, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over all of Israel whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. So Micah He's, a, uh, he's an Old Testament prophet. It's actually the namesake for our second-born son, Micah. He's an Old Testament minor prophet. And he lived in a real small town, kind of outside. His town was actually a lot like ours. It dwelt in largely an agricultural part of the city. It wasn't a place that people would flock to for fame or power or wealth or anything like that. It was just a normal place with normal people doing normal things on a regular basis. So he, Micah lived outside the governmental centers of power in his nation uh, and led to his strong concern. Micah, as you read it, he had a strong concern for kind of the lowly, the less fortunate people of society, the lame, the outcast, the afflicted. 
And because of that, Micah directed a lot of his prophecy toward the powerful leaders of the day. But the first few words in this should strike you as familiar. Even if you never have read these verses before, the town of Bethlehem is mentioned here. The town of Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem, it was, it was too small to be considered a great city. She was uh, too little to be any sort of strategic military outpost. You know, most, uh, most inhabitants were poor farmers. Bethlehem means bread or town of bread. Ephrathah, the second half of that name there, it's an older name for Bethlehem. And it means fruitful which I think is incredible, that, that the second half of that name means fruitful. And God was getting ready to do something great in the town of Bethlehem. Bethlehem was going to become fruitful. The Savior of the world would be born there. Messiah, the Messiah of the world would be born in Bethlehem. And Bethlehem, in this sense, was a little brother to some of the other towns in the area. It wasn't special. Nothing good usually comes from there, as one of Jesus' disciples so eloquently put it. Bethlehem, you can't produce or do anything noteworthy. You're simply too little. God has decided otherwise, though. Bethlehem, known as the city of David, would do something amazing with God's help. See, the wise men, they, they came to Jerusalem. We're all familiar with the wise men. They followed a star and inquired of the, the scribes. They talked to the Pharisees about the ancient prophecy, and they learned that the Messiah would not be born in Jerusalem or Rome or any other great city as far as human standards go, but insignificant, too little Bethlehem. See, when you go to the birth narrative of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, it actually spells it out for you in Matthew 2, verses 1 to 6. It says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw its star when it rose and have come to worship him. And when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem was with, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born, in Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied. For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. See, Matthew there is actually quoting back to the book of Micah. So we can see the words and the phrases that are similar in that instance. But it made no sense for a king, and not just a king, a king of all kings, to be born in a place like Bethlehem. It didn't make any sense whatsoever. It's like saying the king was born in Lamore. Sorry, Lamorians who are in here. It just wouldn't make any sense, right? Like, like standard thinking would be, hey, someone great and powerful, one of the greatest leaders of the entire world that the world has ever seen was born in Lamore. Cool, 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 cool. I heard one amen over here. It's not you whoever said that, okay? But it just doesn't, it doesn't comprehend. It doesn't make sense. But it's instances like this that we get an opportunity to remember that our significance doesn't come from what others say about you. It comes from what God does through you. And that's what we have here in Bethlehem. Bethlehem wasn't about, it wasn't about what people said about it. 
Because as we've covered extensively already is that no one said anything good about Bethlehem. It was just an average town. It was like, oh, Bethlehem, yeah, that's a place. Nothing good should have come out of Bethlehem. But again, it's, it's not about what people say about you. It is what God is going to do in and through you. And that's exactly what we see here as Christ comes onto the scene. Because no one had a reaction regarding that place. No one was excited about it. No one thought, oh yeah, that makes sense. In the same way, we sell ourselves short in what God can do through us simply because oftentimes we feel inadequate. We feel like a nobody. We feel like God placed us here to go to school, to get a job, to get married, to have a family, to work long enough so we can retire and not run out of money before we die. That's oftentimes how we kind of live life, how we approach life. It's like, you know what? These are the things that I'm supposed to do. These are the things that society tells me I'm supposed to do. And so because of that, that's what I'm going to do. And we get to the end of our lives and we think to ourselves, really? That was it. That's what I was supposed to accomplish here, was just to be comfortable and die? But it's not about us. It's not about our circumstances. It isn't about what other people say about us. It isn't about how important culture has told you that you are or you aren't. It isn't about what God, or it is simply about what God does in and through you. It's about the fact that the the ruler of the world wants to use the meek and the lowly to change everything about the world. That's what it's about. See, Micah tells us that that Bethlehem is about to produce one who is the ancient of days. The ancient of days. This phrase means that the, the king coming from Bethlehem has no starting point. He has no starting. He's the ancient of days. He has always been the king of kings and the Lord of lords will be a descendant of the house of David and he will be from eternity past. He will be timeless. He will have no start. Only Christ can fulfill this prophecy, and he does. See, the Son of God has always existed. And the Son of God, Jesus, he took on flesh at the incarnation. It's a fancy word for him being born into the world. He was born into time then through the Virgin Mary. And so often we talk about the idea of Jesus as our Savior, he came into earth and he was born of the Virgin Mary and then we celebrate Easter and his resurrection and he is our Savior. At the end of all of our services, we pray the ABCs and talk about admit, believe, choose. I choose to follow you because you're my Savior. But oftentimes what we forget is Christ isn't just our Savior, Christ is also our King. And so as somebody who is our King, we need to be obedient to him. We need to be subservient to him as our King, not just thankful for him as our Savior. These are two very different mindsets. But one of the interesting things is he isn't a king who came demanding respect. He isn't a king who came kind of cracking a whip and saying, get in line or get out. It's not the way Jesus came. Actually, in Micah 5.4, it tells us that he is a king who, came, who is going to come to shepherd his flock. See, he's a shepherd king. He's not a king who's going to sit on a throne and just squish you if he doesn't like what you're doing or anything like that. He is a shepherd king. And most of us don't understand what that even means. What does it mean for Christ to, to be a shepherd king? Especially in that context. What, is that, what, is he, what does even a shepherd 
look like? Well, the good news is, is uh, Peter in 1 Peter 5 actually tells us what a shepherd should be. And Peter's actually talking through kind of the idea of being an elder and being a leader in the church and that sort of thing, but he uses the term shepherd. And so this isn't on the screen, and I'm going to read it through to you. It's verses 1 through 11. Peter says, To the elders among you I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who will also share in the glory to be revealed. But shepherds of God's flock, that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he might lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. That's Peter describing what a shepherd does. How a shepherd herds kind of his flock. And even as we read through that, we can see what it looked like for Christ to be a shepherd king. Someone who loves us. Someone who cares for us, not just because he has to, but because he is willing to. He came as someone who was humble, not proud. Someone who understood that there is spiritual warfare going on all around us. Someone who willingly submitted to the authority of the Father in order to rescue us for all of eternity. See, that's what it looks like for Christ to be a shepherd king. And as I read that, we're like, yeah, that makes sense. But this would have been countercultural. It doesn't make sense for a king to operate this way. In the same way that it doesn't make sense for God to take something meek and lowly and or, in order to change the world with it. In the same way that it doesn't make sense for the king of the world, the king of kings, the lord of lords to be born in a no-place town that nobody cared about that that is where Christ was going to be born into time. That's what it looks like for Christ to be a shepherd king. And the only reason I got into that is because we need to understand that this very same guy, born out of nowhere, in an unassuming place to rescue unassuming people, wants to do infinitely more with you than you or your friends or your family or your boss or the rest of society says is even possible. And that's why we get into that. And the way he's able to accomplish that is actually incredibly simple. John 10, verse 11. It says, I am the good, what? Shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. 
And we got a shepherd king, we got a king who's willing to come and die for his sheep. That's not normal. That's the opposite of what we assume to be normal. This Christmas season, we get a, uh, an opportunity to be reminded that God uses things that have no business changing the world in order to change the world. Because a God who had no business coming to earth to die for us did just that. And Christmas is about God fulfilling his promises in Christ. Christmas is about the insignificant made significant. Christmas is about the divine baby born in Bethlehem and destined for the eternal throne of David. It's about this king being our good shepherd and leading us home. See, Christmas is not only about God's promises being fulfilled in Christ, but all of God's promises being for us in Christ. This is why one of the, the main pillars of what we do here at FBH is something we call oikos. I know for those of you who have been around for a while, you're going to quote me on a couple of things that I'm about to say. Because you know where I'm going with this. But the term oikos is a Greek word that means household. That's found oftentimes in scripture. It's all those people who are under your care. All those people who you would say hey, you have a relationship with. And I say under your care because I'm talking about under your, your care spiritually. Now whether that's people in your physical household, your wife, your kids, your grandkids maybe. Maybe it's people in your workplace. Maybe it's friends. Maybe it's family that you see once a year that's coming up here in about mm, nine days that you're going to see. I don't know what it is. I don't know who is in your oikos, but what we would say is that God has both supernaturally and strategically placed eight to 15 people in your relational world in order to make an impact for the kingdom of God. So every single one of us in here have an exponential impact we could make for the kingdom of God. Not just could make, should make for the kingdom of God. But what happens oftentimes is we assume that we aren't qualified enough to do that. We don't have all of the answers in order to do that. Well, once I read through my Bible in the year in 2020, then I'll be able to do that. Once I go to one more class, once I join one more small, once, once Peter finally teaches on how to approach people about Jesus, once all of those things happen, then maybe I'll start approaching people about Jesus. Man, if we look back, in all of the instances when the word was spread from Jesus to one person, that one person didn't wait for a membership class. They didn't wait to read all of the New Testament because it wasn't around yet in order to uh, go and tell other people. They simply had an encounter with Jesus and then went and told other people about the encounter they had with Jesus. None of those people were important. All of those people were unassuming. None of them thought that 2,000 plus years later we were going to be talking about them this morning. The woman at the well was even confused as to why Jesus stopped and had a conversation with her. And here we are, 2,000 years later, talking about her. Why? One, because she had an encounter with Jesus that changed her life. And two, because immediately following that encounter, she went and told her oikos. 
She was less than average. She was less than nobody from nowhere. People hated her. And she changed the world. She changed the world. And maybe not the entire world, but her world, those 8 to 15 people, man, she went and told everybody she knew. And what did she do? She just brought them back and introduced them to Jesus. Like, hey, this is Jesus. And they heard about Jesus, and Jesus talked to them. They're like, all right, I'll follow him too. Man, we make it so difficult oftentimes to put so many more obstacles in our way because we just simply assume that we're not good enough. We're not smart enough. We're going to rock the boat. Our friendship isn't going to be okay after I have that conversation. Whatever it is, whatever fear it is that we have getting in our way, we just assume that we aren't good enough in order to share the gospel of Christ with people. And can I tell you something encouraging? I'm so glad none of you are famous. I'm so glad I'm not famous. I'm so glad that I'm no one from nowhere. Because that tells me that God is going to use us. God will continue to use me, and I hope he continues to use me as long as I'm effective. And then he can kill me, and I'll go hang out with him. But until that day comes, I recognize simply that, hey, it's not about my pedigree. It's not about what I bring to the table. It's about my submission to a shepherd king who came to a town that nobody assumed was a town that he should come from and will do incredible works through nobodies from nowhere. Now, we talk about this Oikos thing. We always talk about it uh, like externally, right? We need to go tell people about Jesus. We have people who don't know God yet or anything like that. But an important part of our oikos is actually those people who already know who Jesus is, who've already heard the gospel of Christ, who maybe at one point even placed their faith in Christ. Now, as uh, we had our, our small group, our last small group of, uh, of the decade uh, was, uh, was on Wednesday. And uh, we, we scrapped the questions, and we have a married group that we meet on, on Wednesday nights with, and... Um, so we decided that the best way to build camaraderie was to compete against one another. Um, and so we had the ladies in one room, like the ladies walked in and they walked to one room. They weren't allowed in the guys' room. The guys were in the other room. Um, and uh, we had a gingerbread house building contest, right? And it was awesome. Um, mostly because the house was a little bit warm with all the people that we had in there. And so the frosting never actually froze. So it was like melting gingerbread houses. It was phenomenal. Uh, more the girl's house than the guy's house, to be fair. Yeah, it has nothing to do with their ability to build homes or anything like that. So don't read into what I'm saying. Um, but if you did a stress test, ours would have won. Um, anyway, so we're there and, uh, you know, we complete the houses. And I actually posted it on my Instagram story so, so people could people could vote to see which house was better, and they had 24 hours to vote. And so in case you're curious, the guys won 56% to 44%, no big deal. Um, I mean, we had a Lego guy rappelling from the roof on a, uh, on a Twizzler, hanging from a Twizzler. So I mean, what are you going to do about that, right? Um, and the ladies use celery. It's a gingerbread house. Use celery. Get out of here. Um, anyway, but after... After that night, you know, we got a couple cards, and I was reading through the cards, and just kind of some encouragement that our small group gave me, 
and gave us as a family and just said, hey, thank you for walking alongside of us. Thank you um, as we continue this journey through Christ. Thank you for encouraging us, you know, the, the different things. And I began to think to myself that we as a church have a very rare opportunity in the both Christmas season and Easter season to be able to talk about an incredibly important part of our lives where it isn't considered taboo. It isn't considered strange. It's not considered weird. It is a cultural norm where in America, we will have, next week, we will have a full house because you come to Christmas Eve, that's what you do. And in Easter, you come to Easter because that's what you do. Actually, over 80% of people, uh, this is a recent poll, over 80% of people said that they would indeed come to church if someone just simply asked them, right? Over 80%, you know that number goes up at Christmas and Easter time? And the reason I share all this with you is simply because I don't want you to continue to sell yourself short. Not because you're special, because you're not. Sorry, youngest in the room. You're not special. I'm not special. It's not about your pedigree. It's not about my pedigree. It's simply about what God can and will do through the obedience of his sheep. As our shepherd king guides us and moves us forward and shows us those people in our lives who don't yet know him or need to be encouraged in their faith. They're all around you. You have eight to 15 of them. And so I would just charge you with that is the recognition of the season, what it would look like if we simply said, you know what, God, I know I'm not special, but you can work through me. So just have your way. I'll be obedient. I'll say yes. You tell me what it is that you want to do. You tell me who it is you want me to talk to. You tell me who it is that I need to invite to Christmas this season. I don't know, whatever it is. Show your obedience as a sheep to our shepherd king and see exactly what it is that he will do in and through you. Because it's from no no one's from nowhere that he changes the world with. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I'm uh, I'm thankful for today. I'm thankful for... um, just the Christmas season, the cold air outside, um, the opportunities to wear sweaters, ugly or pretty. God, I'm just thankful for this season, the exciting time that it is. I'm even thankful that this is a cultural norm for us, that Christmas is a cultural norm for us. But that we wouldn't see it as the excitement of new people hearing your gospel for the first time, but we would recognize that these are people who, who, who know your story who know who you are and haven't officially said yes to choosing to follow you every single day. And so God, I would just pray that, that as we recognize that we are just unassuming normal people who we live our lives like everybody else around us just simply lives our li- live our lives. God, I pray that you would be willing, that you would do an incredible work through us. That even as we think about this little town in Bethlehem, that Micah talked about in chapter 5, that Matthew talked about in chapter 2, that you sent your son to a nowhere town. And we recognize that it isn't about what the world says about us that matters. It's about what you're going to do through us. And so God, if there are people in here who have not said yes to you, and are just kind of feeling that tug on their heart and saying, you know what, I want to say yes 
to Jesus. I recognize that this season is more about gifts, more than about gifts. It's more than just about gathering with family. It's about a recognition of you sending your son on our behalf. And so if that's you in here today, I just, just pray that we call them the ABCs along with me, with heads still bowed, eyes still closed. You say, A, Father, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. That oftentimes, God, I'm worse than average. I'm nothing. But I admit that. And B, I believe that you sent your son. You stretched him into skin. He was born of the Virgin Mary in a little town called Bethlehem in order for him to die on a cross years later so that regardless of my sin, I can be with you. So I believe that, Father. And see, I choose to follow you every single day. It's the category that most of us fall into is choosing to follow you every single day, God. Lord, I pray that we would make that our marching orders, that from the moment our feet hit the floor in the morning, that we would choose to follow you every single day of our lives. God, I'm thankful for your son. I'm thankful for what you're doing in this place. I'm thankful for what you're doing in the lives of your believers. And God, I pray that you would take unassuming, average people from Kings County and work in and through us and change the world. We love you, Father. See your sons and we Amen. Thank you for listening to the FBH Podcast. We hope that you enjoyed this week's sermon. Music was by the band Broke for Free, and if you would like more information about our church, feel free to check out fbhanford.org. That's fbhanford.org. Thank you again, and we'll see you next week.